It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to us on the Ideas Network. Coming up, Governor Tony Evers and state Republicans reached a deal on a shared revenue bill for local governments. We'll learn more about how that money can be spent and how it'll impact communities across the state. First, it can be hard to say goodbye, and sometimes a song can help. So long, farewell, I'll be there saying goodbye. The sun has gone to bed and so must I. Thank you, fellas. That was perfect. That was the character Danny Rojas leading the singing in a recent finale of the Apple TV show Ted Lasso with the title character responding. Lasso, along with the popular HBO show Succession, marks some of the latest finales to join the pantheon of major TV endings. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. Did a show you loved end this year? What did you think of that last episode? Do you have a favorite final episode of all time? What did you love about it? Do you have a least favorite one? What led you down or frustrated you? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or you can post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Brian Carr is Professor of Communication, Information Science, and Women and Gender Studies at UW-Green Bay. Brian, welcome back to Central Time. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be back. What is the formula, as you watch it, Brian, for a successful conclusion to a long-running TV series? So there are different schools of thought on this. Uh, One is that you want to make sure that you tie up your loose ends narratively, that the themes of the show come through in a very meaningful way, even if that doesn't necessarily give some of the most ardent fans of the show what they're looking for. Or you give the fans exactly what they're looking for, Uh, And you make them very, very happy at the end of the season. I think that if you talk about those two shows, Succession did the former, Ted Lasso did the latter, and they both did them, I think, quite well in those frameworks. We got to say, we're talking about a privileged few TV shows, ones that run their course, that give the creators enough time to lead up to that finale. The vast majority of TV shows end, you know, maybe after one episode or one season, they don't know the end is coming. That said, that puts a lot of weight on those shows that do have the opportunity. How have you seen it go wrong for shows that make it to that point? Uh, let's just start with a little show called Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, a show that uh, outlived or, or sorry, the uh, did not necessarily have enough of the actual source material to adapt. So they had to basically go off of notes from the original creator and decided to rush the last season because the showrunners were basically and understandably tired of, of doing the show. Um, and they decided to just go ahead and do something that thematically made a lot of sense. If you go back and watch that show, like the ending of that show where those characters end up, it completely logical follows where things were headed, but was done so abruptly and rushed so much that fans ended up being very alienated and angry uh, by how that turned out. And then they showed up for house of the dragon anyway. So what do I know? Now, we've mentioned Succession, another uh, high-profile show that just came to an end. Here is a clip. The siblings, Shiv, Kendall, and Roman, doing what they do, I guess. They talk and argue over who should succeed to take over the company. It's six to six, and we don't have Shiv's vote. 
This doesn't make, like, logic. Where's the logic? No, I just don't think you'd be good at it. I feel like if I don't get to do this, I, I, I feel like that's it. Like, I might, I might, I, like, I, I might die. Shiv, can we go in that room? Can you just vote? Please. Please. You can't be CEO. You can't, because you killed someone. What you, but, but which? What? Wait, what which? Do you mean, which? But like, what, like you killed so many people, you forgot which one? That's that, that's not an issue. And as you said, Brian, some shows end by uh, continuing what they've been doing all along. I, I haven't watched Succession much, but that uh, that fits the formula. 100%. That show very much the show. Uh, I, I think one of the problems about succession is I think people got caught up in what they thought it was versus what it actually was. What they thought it was, oh, here's characters that we root for, characters we want to see succeed or fail. What it actually was, this is a satire and a scathing indictment of not only the American media system, but really of America itself. And to have essentially the crux of the show boil down to squabbling siblings in a boardroom was really the only way it could have ended. Uh, just it's it's the only real true ending they could have had we were talking about great and not so great tv finales those last episodes whether they get it right or wrong brian carr is with us from uw green bay and you could share your favorites or least favorites at 800-642-1234 shows new or old 800-642-1234 let's bring on a caller now chris is with us in delavan chris hi hi how's it going uh Thanks for having me on. I just wanted to bring up uh, what I think is possibly the most infamous last episode of all time, and that being the last episode of Lost. And uh, I was totally enthralled with the show all the way through up until I regularly tell people to, you know, you can watch the last episode, but I recommend just don't watch the last 15 minutes of the last episode because it just makes you feel like you wasted all of your time before that point. And uh, that's it for me. Chris, thanks a lot. Now, that is one, Brian, that gives a a lot of strong feelings there, the last episode of Lost. The creators have explained it. It's not, uh, you know, they have this explanation of what inspired them and what actually was happening. But I guess if you have to read stuff by the creator to understand it and then like it, maybe it's not such a successful conclusion. There is some, there's certainly an argument you made there. And uh, this is where I'm going to kind of disclose the only episode I ever watched of Lost was the finale. Uh, what? So I was completely lost. Yes. Yeah. You uh, would have been really but, lost. I feel like yeah, it feels appropriate though. Right. <laughs> uh, but so but I was fascinated by it all the same because I had, you know, picked up a lot of it through cultural osmosis, right? Like, I'm like, okay, so they're on an Island. The Island may or may not be purgatory, whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I, there is definitely something to be said for a show that delivers its finale in such a way where if you were expecting a certain outcome or expecting a certain amount of catharsis or an ending, and the show either refuses to deliver that or doesn't deliver that. It I, the caller is absolutely right. Like you can feel like you wasted your time, <laughs> and that's one possible way to react to one of your favorite shows ending. Thanks. Uh, Thanks for that for call sure. at 800-642-1234. Now, Brian, he could have ended that sentence with Lost when it comes to infamous final episodes. He could have ended it with Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, here's a clip from the finale. Uh, the show is mostly in a courtroom where witnesses from throughout the show uh, have, a, in effect, a massive clip show looking back at all the, the bad things the characters did. Here's a moment. I banned that one, the woman, for a year. <laughs> then one day... She came back. Five cups, chopped 
porcini mushrooms, half a cup of olive oil, three pounds celery. This is my recipe for wild mushroom. You're through, soup Nazi. Back it up. No more soup for you. Next! Published my recipes. I had to close the store and move to Argentina. She ruined my business. This soup's not all that good anyway. What did you say? <laughs> this is one that I think frustrated a lot of uh, the hardcore fans of the show, Brian. It was, and, and I understand that, but uh, having recently rewatched that show, again, it feels like the only appropriate ending. Uh, this is a show where the characters sort of very notably are constantly making other people's lives worse, and even in some cases destroying their well-being. So there is something sort of cathartic on some level, maybe not for the audience, but maybe for the show sort of internal logic that eventually they're going to have to, the past will catch up with them. Uh, I will say that ending your series with the characters in a cell uh, (laughs) awaiting, uh, you know, serving on an indeterminate amount of time on a prison sentence is very, very interesting. Um, And there were also a lot of other fake outs, including like they made it look like the plane was going to crash that they were on for a moment. Uh, it's also interesting that they actually had an entire season about that episode in Larry David's later show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, that addressed some of these. So if you haven't checked that out, it's worth watching. <laughs> Let's go back to our callers now. Erica is with us in Lake Tomahawk. Erica, hello. Well, good afternoon. I think one of the one of the sweetest endings ever was Big Bang, and one of the worst was Cheers. It was that was I don't know if they were drunk or what the deal was. <laughs> was that the one where they had they had like john mclaughlin the sort of serious uh public affairs guy interviewing like having a panel discussion with the characters yeah pretty much yeah Thank- i think they were lit i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know it's the tv business that's certainly possible thanks a lot for that call pro big bang and, and the cheers is one that's gotten talked about a lot over the years not a fan there brian no but it is one of the highest rated finales of all time uh, and what's interesting, if you go back and you look at shows like MASH and Cheers and that sort of thing, and even Seinfeld, these were shows that were massive cultural events. They were rapidly approaching the Super Bowl in terms of actual viewership. And that just doesn't happen anymore. Uh, the, you know, the, we talk about the uh, finales for Ted Lasso and Succession. Succession got, I think, about 2.2 million viewers which is nothing compared to 80.4 for Cheers or 105 for MASH, uh, which is pretty emblematic of how much just the business of television has changed. Thanks a lot for that call. Brian Carr is with us from UW-Green Bay, and we're looking at TV show finales, a couple big ones, but by modern standards anyway, just passed us by. Talking about what makes them great or terrible, and you could join in at 800-642-1234. If there is a series you have loved and it made it to a finale, did it do what you wanted it to do? Did it uh, wrap up the show in a satisfying way for you? Or did it disappoint you? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll continue the conversation. Take more of your calls coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Verrett. Right now, we're picking up our conversation about TV finales with Brian Carr, professor of communication, information science, and women and gender studies at UW-Green Bay. You could join in at 800-642-1234. What last episode of what show do you want to bring up 
for better or worse. Call it at 800-642-1234. Let's go back to your calls. Uh, Susie is with us in New Berlin. Hi, Susie. Hi. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember this show, but uh, the Bob Newhart show when he and his wife were running an inn in, I don't know, someplace in the northeast corner. Um, the last show, um, if you were a Bob Newhart fan, as I was, I mean, there are a lot of people that just followed him no matter what he, <laughs> he was doing because he's just got such dry humor. Anyway, um, uh, the end of the last show, I don't even remember what they did at the end. Called it quits, closed the doors, I don't know. And then all of a sudden it switched to the show before that. They were in bed in their apartment in Chicago which was the series before the other one started. And uh, the wife woke up and she said, I just had the weirdest dream. We had an inn in the Northeast, you know. Sure. So anyway, they, they tied the two together. I thought that was kind of cute, and I felt good about it. it. It felt very done. Susie, thanks a lot for the call. And that's one I think people bring up a lot, Brian. Yeah, the Newhart show ended as a dream in the previous Bob Newhart show. Uh, I don't know, funny joke, or is it It was all a dream to that uh, it didn't disappoint our caller, but maybe other people weren't wild about it. It's one of those things where if it feels right for the tone of the show, uh-huh. it's probably fine. But yeah, the it's all a dream cop-out is usually just that. <laughs> Thanks a lot for that call at 800-642-1234. Terry is with us now in Milwaukee. Hi, Terry. Yeah, hi. This is a copycat of Susie's. Um, St. Elsewhere. I don't know if your guest Brian's old enough to remember that. Um, It was a hospital setting with Hollywood's uh, depiction of how they spot people working in a hospital, a busy hospital operate. And... uh, Sadly, it ended with uh, a child having a dream. Right. Uh, it pans back, I, I think, uh, Brian. It's been a while. And then you see that uh, the hospital is inside like a snow globe, and it's a kid holding the snow globe, and it was all uh, an illusion or a dream or something like that. Where is that on your list? So I, I have not watched St. Elsewhere. I will be completely transparent <laughs> about that. Uh, but the snow globe ending is infamous and certainly one of those ones that has been referenced, parodied, et cetera. <laughs> and again, when you set up the finale as saying everything that you just watched ultimately was just false, it wasn't real, you are adding a level of artifice to something that's already inherently artificial. And it really does not, I, I personally think that's usually not a great way to end it. But Again, we remember it, so maybe they did something right. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Terry. Uh, Mercedes joins us next in Green Bay. Mercedes, hi. What shows do you have for us? Hi. Um, so I just recently watched Breaking Bad and uh, Better Call Saul in that order. Um, I know uh, Breaking Bad's finale has been hailed by a lot of people, but I honestly really didn't like it because I don't think Walt got what he deserved, honestly. Um, but I think that its sequel series, Better Call Saul, was amazing in how it carried out its finale, especially in tying up the characters' loose ends and their stories. Mercedes, thanks a lot for sharing that. And uh, I think it was a good non-spoiler way to talk about the end of Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Brian, what do you think? Yeah, and I'll try to also avoid spoilers as much as I can. I mean, it's I know been it's out a very... for a while. But, it has, yeah. but people are still discovering it, so I'll, I'll, I'll cut them a break. But yeah, it is something sort of anticlimactic. Uh, it really comes down to, do you see Walt Walter White as a hero or a villain? And the show is very clear. You should see him as a villain. 
the fandom is not always as clear. And so if you see him as a hero, it's almost sort of like this sort of poetic ending. If you don't see him as that, like, uh, yeah, like Mercedes said, it is not satisfying because you're like, wait a minute, this is just, he got off too light, right? Um, Better Call Saul in a lot of ways from, uh, and I kind of gave up on that, but I did keep up with the show. I read about it. I followed the ending. Um, feels like in a lot of ways they were trying to kind of maybe sort of re- reorient the kind of moral compass of those two shows with that ending. Mercedes, thanks a lot for that call. We're talking to Brian Carr from UW-Green Bay about great and less great TV series finales after a couple of big ones dropped over the last few weeks. Let's go back to your calls at 800-642-1234. Lynn is with us in Houstisford. Lynn, hi. Hi. Um, I think the best ending of any program that I can think of, besides the one from Bob Newhart, that was cool, but it's MASH. Um, the way they ended that with the uh, going up and then seeing all the people down below, um, that was pretty good ending. Lynn, thanks a lot for the call. We've got a we've got to listen here to a, a clip. Here's a Hawkeye, the Alan Alda saying goodbye to his partner in medicine and crime, BJ Honeycutt. Look, I know how tough it is for you to say goodbye, so I'll say. Maybe you're right. Maybe we will see each other again. But just in case we don't. I want you to know how much you meant to me. I'll never be able to shake you. Whenever I see a big pair of feet or a cheesy mustache, I'll think of you. Whenever I smell month-old socks, I'll think of you. And the next time somebody nails my shoe to the floor, somebody gives me a martini that tastes like lighter fluid, I miss you. I'll miss you. A lot. I can't imagine what this place would have been like if I hadn't found you here. Lynn brings up, a, as you mentioned earlier, Brian, a much-watched uh, series finale. And uh, and it's one that, as we heard in that clip there, gives a lot of the closure people might have wanted to the relationships they'd been following for years. Yeah, and MASH was a special case uh, in a lot of ways. That show tonally was something unlike anything else on television at that point. Uh, you know, very much a show that kind of, in a lot of ways, I believe actually lasted longer than the actual conflict mm-hmm. in which it took place. Um, and was, of course, it was never about the Korean War. Anybody who watched the show knows what it was actually about, which, of course, Vietnam, of course, it also outlasted that. Um, and that's the show that a lot of people like it's very feasible that you know you you watch it as a child you grew up with it into as an adult and so it does i think resonate and stick with people in, in a very meaningful way because those characters really became such a huge part of people's lives thanks a lot for that call brian do you think a series finale is different in the age of mash you know when it was mainly meant for that initial broadcast and yeah some syndication later versus a streaming show that, uh, you know, counts on people in some ways watching it maybe in real time, but maybe discovering it five years later. Sure, and we can get into the metrics of streaming television. That's a whole other interview mm-hmm. and, and and make it make sense. But um, the, the takeaway, I think, is that it, there is a sort of disposability in the streaming age, right? There are shows that will stick around, that will last, that will resonate, uh, that will mean something to people, but they don't feel like events in the same way because it it really comes down to the whole idea that we're not sharing sort of a commonality in terms of when we're actually watching it, where we're actually watching it. If you were watching the MASH finale, you and 105 million other people were all tuned into CBS that night. 
Whereas if you're watching, uh, say, the finale of Ted Lasso or Succession or something like that, you might watch at the same time. Like, you know, we would sit and like when we watched it, we made sure we watched it like, as soon as eight o'clock rolled around. We switched over to, to sorry. I keep saying HBO Max. It's Max now. <laughs> I do so under protest. I, I, ref, I refuse to acknowledge that name. Um, but we, we made sure the app was loaded so we could watch it as soon it was up as it was up. Right. But that's still not the same. Right. And so appointment viewing is gone. Uh, that sort of shared communal community event is gone in an age of fragmentation. Uh, it, it's really hard to have that same sort of impact and oomph. And I think probably the last show to really do it was Game of Thrones. And that's, I think, a part of why it was such sort of vicious backlash because some people were gathered around watching it to see how it ended. Um, so that, that's it's, it's, it's definitely a different time. And is it different, Brian, because, you know, uh, the creators of MASH, say, knew what their ratings were. They might have focused group things. I don't know. But a creator of a TV show today has instant feedback, for better or worse, immediately from the fan community, if any. Well, instant feedback from the fans, for sure. There's uh, jokes uh, in the uh, Ted Lasso subreddit, for instance. People were asking, like, did the writers just follow us and just write what we <laughs> wanted to see? And I think there's an argument that, yeah, they probably did. Uh, but also, you know, in terms of like the actual metrics of how ratings are, are are doing for shows and that kind of thing, those numbers are very much under lock and key at most of the major streaming outlets. It's very difficult for showrunners to know exactly how a show is doing until they get the call. Hey, you've been picked up for another season or hey, you just got canceled. Right. So it's it's really hard, I think, in a lot of ways to build out those seasons uh, in a way that, you know, with linear television, it was a lot easier because if you got renewed for a season, you knew you got X number of episodes. You could either and, and you might get picked up again if the ratings were solid. The folks who did MASH, they knew they're going to be going on for a while until eventually they said, OK, the show's going to end or our ratings are, are down. So we're going to we you know we have one less uh, season to tell the story. So we're going to do it. That doesn't really happen. That's a luxury in the streaming age. Brian, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you for having me. That's Brian Carr, professor of communication, information science, and women and gender studies at UW-Green Bay. We talked to them today about what makes a great or not so great TV finale, and you could keep sharing your favorites, your hits, your misses for final episodes over on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Coming up, find out how a new agreement on Wisconsin's shared revenue system could affect communities around the state and what kind of strings may be attached to local funding. I'm Rob Ferret. This is Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Coming up, a bipartisan pair of lawmakers discuss their new bill that would give victims of clergy abuse more time to file civil lawsuits. Now, Governor Tony Evers and Republican state lawmakers announced a deal last week on a local government funding bill that would revamp the shared revenue system in Wisconsin. The agreement comes after negotiations over how much state aid should increase for communities and what restrictions and concessions should come along with it. Among other things, the bill would give Milwaukee more flexibility to raise local sales tax to avoid looming financial trouble while also providing more funding for school choice vouchers. That aspect was a high priority for Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, who announced the deal at a press conference on Thursday. We will have transformational uh, school choice expansions. We will have money for public schools. We will have more money for all of the local government services that we know are priorities. And on top of that, 
we have a large number of conservative wins with things that we have struggled to get across the finish line before that are all part of a very comprehensive bill uh, that will really showcase the good things that happen in Wisconsin. In a statement, Governor Evers called the bill a compromise that will be, quote, transformative for our communities and our state. Milwaukee city and county leaders praised the funding in the bill while expressing dissatisfaction with other parts of the legislation. You can join the conversation at 800-642-1234. What do you think of the shared revenue deal? What questions do you have about it? Do you think this was a fair compromise? What kind of impact could more state funding have on your community? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Mark O'Connell is president and CEO of the Wisconsin Counties Association. Mark, welcome to Central Time. Good to be on the show, Rob. And Ross Milton is an assistant professor of public affairs at UW-Madison. His research focuses on the political economy and public finance of state and local taxes. Ross, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Ross, can you explain the basics? People don't necessarily don't see the words uh, shared revenue written on local services. How much, though, does it affect our communities? Well, um, it's a major piece of funding for local governments all across the state of Wisconsin. And I think states um, transfer resources to local governments in different ways in different states. Um, but in most states, Money that comes from the state in one fashion is a is a major source of revenues for local governments. And in Wisconsin, the major way that's done is through this shared revenue system. Mark, so these um, these these changes uh, will have a big impact in many places. Mark, we've talked about uh, cities and other local governments. How about counties? How do you describe the need that was out there from counties uh, to get more shared revenue from the state? Well, counties are really an extension of, of the state in terms of providing services. Our state lawmakers and governor uh, evaluate what needs or desires the citizens have and then pass legislation or programs which uh, meet those needs or desires. They then ask state agencies to perform the function. When the state agencies need uh, statewide outreach, many times they will ask the counties to perform the function. Sometimes money goes with it, sometimes sufficient money, and sometimes insufficient money. When it's insufficient, property taxes make up the difference. So this particular piece of legislation, uh, transferring dollars from the state to the counties and cities, towns, and villages as well, is a major piece of legislation which will definitely have an impact on the citizens of Wisconsin and their property tax bills. As you look at it from that county perspective, Mark, uh, what we're seeing in this deal, how would county governments around the state uh, be affected? Yeah, this is uh, one of the most transformative elements of this particular piece of legislation is the linkage of state revenues to local units of government being tied to the state's economy. In other words, currently, local units of government primarily rely on the property tax for, for funding. That has some loose relationship with the economy, but not direct. What this legislation is doing is taking one cent of the sales tax and allocating it to local units of government. And as sales tax collections go up two, three, four, or in some cases even higher percent, so too will the allocation to local governments. That that single piece of this legislation links our revenues at the local level to the state's economy. What that really does is make, it, it creates all of us at the local government level 
wanting what the state wants, more people making more money, engaged in more commerce, paying more in taxes at current or even lower rates, so we can take those dollars as locals, invest them in our in our communities to make them attractive to the smart young wealth makers of tomorrow. And Ross, this deal, and I think you've said this elsewhere, was a long awaited. I think a lot of people felt like something needed to change. It was overdue. Can you talk about the need uh, for lawmakers and the governor to tackle this? Sure. The shared revenue program has been cut and or neglected repeatedly over the last 20 years. And so if in terms of how much resources local governments are getting um, today relative to what they were getting 20 years ago, if you adjust for inflation, it's a dramatic decrease. And in, in, um, in many in many for many local governments, even with this large sounding increase that is being proposed today, um, will actually not bring them back in real inflation adjusted terms to where they were in you know, 2003. Talking to Ross Milton, Professor UW-Madison, and Mark O'Connell with the Wisconsin Counties Association looking in this agreement between Governor Evers and Republican leaders in the legislature over an update to the shared revenue plan. Still has to be passed by the legislature. You could join in with your thoughts or questions at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's go to your calls now. Mark is with us in Wauwatosa. Mark, hi. Hi, hi. Yes, a Hoosier by birth uh, from Indiana, but a Badger living in Wisconsin the last quarter century. Uh, property in both states, residential uh, house. Uh, oh boy, it's going to be so much more expensive here. Um, there was an article in today's Journal Sentinel that said that uh, Milwaukee, would, if, if the property tax goes higher, as the politicians just agreed at the state level that uh, without a referendum that, um, you know, we'll be on par with other major cities. What the Journal Sentinel article did not state today was it did not compare the property tax. I know that in Indiana, property tax is 1% of assessed value for residential. So, it's 2% for vacation homes. It's 3% for commercial property. And we pay, oh, I don't know, anywhere from two to four times higher property tax here in Wisconsin. Gotcha, Mark. Thanks for the call. Ross, uh, Mark mentioning uh, the sales tax increase approved for Milwaukee without a referendum requiring a two-thirds vote, I believe, from the county board and the city government. Uh, how do we compare in Wisconsin in our reliance uh, on property taxes, as Mark was saying, uh, versus uh, other forms of revenue? Wisconsin's very unusual in that our local governments receive very, very little revenue from sales taxes and instead are almost the only tax instrument that local governments really have any local control over is the property tax. I mean, and that's unusual. Most In most states, um, local governments have the ability to raise revenue via both sales taxes and property taxes. Through, you know, it, it all varies across states um, how that exactly works. But we're unusual in that respect. And so this, this proposal um, does change that somewhat, all but only for Milwaukee, the city of Milwaukee and Milwaukee County. Um, and it would allow them to, to use the sales tax as well. Thanks for that call, Mark. And Mark O'Connell with the Counties Association. Do you feel like this deal uh, gives counties not named Milwaukee County enough uh, flexibility, enough local control over their fiscal fates? 
Well, uh, maybe not con- maybe not so much control, but it does link our, our revenues to the economy. So we all have a vested interest in a very successful, vibrant economy. In, in, in Wisconsin, we're very high in property taxes compared to the rest of the nation. We're relatively low on, on sales taxes, and we're somewhere in the middle on income taxes. What this is doing in a in a small way, at least in the in the city and county of Milwaukee, it is changing that mix a little. Um, I think we're going to see later in this budget, we'll see some adjustments in tax policy, uh, probably in the income tax area, but th- th- that will have the effect of changing our mix uh, somewhat at the at the state level. Thanks for that call. Mary Kay joins us next in Kenosha. Mary Kay, hello. Hi, I was hoping that the uh, cities and counties would finally hire program monitors for our uh, WIDA because WIDA does absolutely nothing for subsidized housing. And taxpayers are paying for things that they wouldn't believe are not getting done. And I'm talking for nonprofits here. So it's, it's about time they took some of the money and started fixing up the properties and started, you know, having those people become accountable because they're just wasting our tax dollars. Okay, thanks for the call. Housing and economic development funding. Mark, what kind of uh, oversight is there at the county level anyway uh, when state funding uh, via WIDA and other programs uh, gets spent at the county level? Well, uh, the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority, WIDA, uh, is an entity that has very little state funding uh, injected into it. Uh, WIDA is more or less kind of a self-sufficient operation where they work with developers and housing authorities to create housing, which is has very little um, uh, interface or, or rub up against uh, local units of government. We, we certainly uh, have facilities within our boundaries that are WIDA funded, but we don't really have oversight of that. And quite frankly, the 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 issues that are the the bond issuances that WIDA might engage in to create a housing development is sort of a, a one-time thing. There's certainly follow-up, but the uh, the actual operation of a of a housing unit or complex that is uh, wouldn't necessarily fall under the authority of WIDA, but it might be more of a a private sector developer issue. Thanks for calling in, Mary Kay. We're talking to Wisconsin Counties Association President Mark O'Connell and UW-Madison Public Affairs Professor Ross Milton about the shared revenue deal here in Wisconsin reached between Governor Evers and Republican leaders in the state legislature, still uh, advancing through the legislature now. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What would it mean for your community to get some more money back from the state? How do you feel about some of the restrictions, the strings attached? We'll get into that a little on how that money can be spent. Do you like this compromise? Do you have questions about it? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Right now, we're picking up the conversation about Wisconsin's shared revenue system, an agreement between legislative Republicans and Governor Tony Evers. Our guests are Wisconsin Counties Association President Mark O'Connell and UW-Madison Public Affairs Professor Ross Milton. And you could join in at 800-642-1234. If you have questions about the shared revenue deal, what it could mean for your community, how do you want to see increased state aid used by your local government? Call 800 642 one two three four. That's eight hundred six four two one two three four. Ross, there are some strings attached. Uh, what are some of the rules for how this increased funding could be spent by local governments that receive it? What stands out to you? 
Well, um, I think that this is a big change in the way the shared revenue system is thought of. You know, historically, the shared revenue system has been unrestricted aid to local governments that had no strings attached in terms of how they were intended to use it. Um, whereas the, the proposal that we have now for the the new the increases in aid are intended to be used um, primarily for public safety related expenses. Um, and and that's a, that is, I think, a fundamental change that you can you can argue for, you can argue against it, but it, it is a big change. Mark, what do you think of that change in particular? Yeah, the the, the restrictions, or I guess, uh, directed use of the revenue uh, for public safety and transportation. That's a it's a pretty it's a pretty wide uh, range of it, of items on which we can spend funds. Nine one one dispatch courts, public uh, transportation infrastructure. That is quite a bit of what local government does. So it, it it is a it is a change from being unrestricted, but it it is still providing a fair amount of flexibility. I, I think one thing that we should not lose sight of, Rob, this uh, while the legislature and the governor uh, aren't necessarily dinner partner uh, dinner party partners, uh, they've agreed on this issue. So Speaker Voss, Senator Lemahieu, uh, Senator Felskowski, Representative Kurtz, and Tony Evers all came together from different parts of the political spectrum to say, we we need to, to provide dollars to local government so they can improve their communities, make them attractive to the talent, which is our number one resource for private sector profit in our new millennium knowledge technology-based economy. They've seen the future. And this, quite frankly, this, this legislation is very visionary. And I think we will look back 10, 15, 20 years from now and say, back in 2022, we saw what needed to get done and did it. And it's going to put our state in a much better place. So to add to what Mark was saying sure. about the, the flexibility that, that that it does provide, you know, for, for many local governments, those restrictions may not end up being all that meaningful because they already spend a lot of money on those um those topics. And so they have that now they have these earmarked funds for those those um those expenditures and that frees up other money to be spent in other ways. Um so for some local governments it, it may not make much difference. Let's go back to our callers at 800-642-1234. Jeff is with us in Eagle River. Jeff, hi. Hi. Uh, yeah, I was uh, I'm kind of somewhat amused by the conversations that are going on here. Uh, the original purpose of the shared revenue formula, um, you know, was to, was to be able to return the largest that the state of Wisconsin received vis-a-vis -vis the income taxes that it generated from the people that live within the municipalities and the counties in the state of Wisconsin. And that those formulas, that formula uh, was established uh, to be fair and equally distributed uh, among those taxpayers for the purpose of property tax relief. Now, what's going on right now is, is, is kind of like a, I just sort of call it, call it visionary. It's not visionary. If they were to go back to the old formula back in the 1980s, in the 19, early 1990s, uh, prior to um, the changes that were made by the Republican-controlled legislature, they would see that there, more money would be returned into the municipalities for the purpose of alleviating the property tax. You know, they, they use that money for other things now. They got the shared revenue pr uh, program instead of returning it to municipalities, and they use it for spending in other areas. The purpose of the program was to relieve the property tax, to help offset the, the, that burden of of that the caller from was talking about Indiana, you know, as an example, 
it seems to me that you know they need to establish a formula that is a, a, you know has a growth factor a, a, you know associated with the increase in state revenues Jeff I gotcha thanks for the call Ross uh, does Jeff have the history about right and how that formula uh, didn't end up working ultimately the way we wanted it to originally it's certainly the case that the shared revenue system had the effect of of um, alleviating property taxes, but the intent originally was to compensate local governments for lost tax revenue due to um, state legislation that decreased the ability of local governments to um, tax certain types of property and to tax income when the, the state created the income tax system. Um, and so, so that's approximately right. Um, and over time, in the last couple of decades, the shared revenue formula hasn't been updated, cuts have been made, and so um, it hasn't been transferring as much money to local governments. And so if local governments wanted more revenue, they, you know, they went to the property tax, the only tool that they had. Um, right. And so, so that's, that's definitely true. Thanks a lot for that call. We're talking to Ross Milton from UW-Madison and Mark O'Connell with the Wisconsin Counties Association looking at this shared revenue plan agreed to by a Democratic governor, Republican leaders in the legislature, now making its way through that legislature. Mark, I wanted to ask, uh, with the Counties Association, <laughs> counties uh, come in a lot of shapes and especially sizes here in Wisconsin. Can you talk about some of the, uh, the different challenges facing uh, counties with uh, different resources to work with in the first place? Oh, yeah. And it, it refers to, I mean, I go back to something Jeff indicated, the previous caller. Uh, the shared revenue formula, as Ross indicated, hasn't really been run for uh, almost two decades. Uh, and so it's very hard to put some dollars into a formula and then rerun it without having several you know, people that are that are, are going to get less, losers, you might call them. Uh, the, the time to to revamp the formula is when you can make sure there are no losers uh, to get it done politically. That's that's part of what was being done with this piece of legislation. We've had counties that, if you would run the formula, would be getting much more. Uh, maybe the best uh, example of that is Waukesha. Uh, they get they're a large county, but they get a very small dollar amount in terms of shared revenue. If we were going to rerun the formula, they might do they would do much much better. Uh, at the same time, you may have some smaller counties that are getting a substantial uh, uh, portion of shared revenue, but if you reran the formula, might not get as much. So when we in, infuse a fair amount of dollars like this legislation does, you can ensure that everyone gets something. Is it is it enough? Is it fair? Not really uh, it, when it comes to a formula because we're not really running a formula again. We're sort of adding dollars and evening things out among cities, towns, villages, counties, and then saying that's your new base. Now you're going to get increases, as Jeff indicated, as the economy does better, sales tax collections go up, then you in your city, town, village, county will also get that same percentage increase in your new base. So it's it's not perfect, but very few things in politics are. But it's as, it's as perfect as it could get in, uh, in a very complex piece of legislation. Ross, I wanted to ask about the sustainability of this system. We've got a, a budget surplus now, so we had some money to work with. Uh, Mark mentioned uh, as the economy gets better, uh, things look better. Economies get worse sometimes. Are we going to be in a situation in two or five or 10 years, potentially, where this formula runs up against the shoals and we have a big problem with it again? Well, so I think part of the reason that we haven't, that it has been decreasing over the last 20 years is that the previous system didn't really have a 
any mechanism through which it automatically increased over time. And as so it was up to the legislature to pass a, a new a law saying that, well, we're going to increase total funding for shared revenues by 5% next year. And that by and large didn't happen. And so as Mark has pointed out, like the, I think the, the very nice feature of this is that there is some aspect in which it will automatically increase over time, uh, keyed to how state sales tax revenue goes up. Um, and so if sales tax revenue goes up, that will, you know, benefit local governments. If sales tax revenue doesn't increase over time uh, from one year to another, then there wouldn't be in share revenue. We'll leave it there. Ross, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And Mark, thanks for being with us. Rob, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Been talking to Mark O'Connell, president and CEO of the Wisconsin Counties Association, and Ross Milton, assistant professor of public affairs at UW-Madison, who researches public finance of, and state and local taxes. They join us for a look at the shared revenue deal announced by Governor Evers and leading Republicans in the state legislature. Still now has to work its way through the legislature to be passed in its final form. Love to hear from you. Is there a part of this deal you want to hear more about, either from us on Central Time or from the WPR News team? Are you wondering how maybe something in your own community is affected? You can email your question, your point of curiosity, over to ideas at WPR.org. That's ideas at WPR.org, and we can give it a look in the future. Coming up tomorrow on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, get an update on a pipeline project here in Wisconsin and the legal battles that have been surrounding it ongoing. The latest on Line 5. That's coming up tomorrow morning at 8 here on the Ideas Network. Thanks to Lee Rayburn for hosting the show last week. On Friday, Lee shared a job opportunity for a pizza taster. I have some more pizza news for you about an ingredient on the rise. According to the website Slice of the Union, which surveys local independent pizzerias, one of the rising stars in the pizza topping world is dill pickles. Now, apparently this pickle pizza idea started to be a thing five years ago, but more as a viral novelty been catching on since then i haven't encountered it or tried it myself but i gotta say of course it makes sense to me now pickles are really salty pizza's pretty salty to begin with so i wouldn't pair it with other salty stuff like pepperoni or bacon or sausage but green peppers and pickles i think that could be a great combo pizza's pack a pack of pickles and peppers this is central time